1: and get 10% off your plan.
2: As I came into the role nine or 10 months ago, we brought e-commerce into that organization. And the first thing I did was merge our shopper marketing teams and our e-commerce team into one team, right? So just that alone, believe it or not, was a big move in synergizing budgets because you had shopper budgets and you had e-commerce budgets and you had media brand budgets, but yet you guys all know the consumer experience is all the same and how we talk to them should be integrated. So I brought the shopper teams and the e-commerce teams together and we now have an omni team and they think very integrated in terms of kind of middle to bottom of funnel type of tactics.
3: Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce.
4: I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Sarah, one of the first things that I did at Gap was sit down with our finance team and understand
3: their methodology
4: behind their media mix model.
3: Oh, sounds like a phenomenal onboarding. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall.
4: This was the interesting thing. In 2011, this is a while ago, social wasn't being represented in the media mix model. At Gap. At Gap in
3: 2011. I wonder how many people were not considered when you just take social out of the equation.
4: And so my conversation was, well, you're holding me to performance metrics for the business, but then you're not valuing it in the media mix model. There's a disconnect here. And what was so cool is that together, we started to refine the media mix model. And when I look back at my time at Gap, like there was a handful of things that I did well and probably a gazillion things that I did terrible. And that was one of the smart decisions. And I always talk to my customers about MMM Because all roads lead back to it, even though I disagree with the fundamentals of MMM in today's media
3: environment. Well, I think the whole idea is the second M, mix. Mm -hmm. What's in the mix, right? Whether it's about mix modeling that is all inclusive, not to mention like not just channels, but what's considered quote unquote media influencer would things like that would go into that equation. But also when it comes to even sales measurement, that's not MMM, but that's like this whole omni-measurement that people talk about, but there are so many different data sources that come in. What is true omni-measurement? And when you look at it in, t- in totality, you say, well, who's in charge around here? But also these models take forever to deliver you results.
4: You get results six months after the efforts were in market. How can you make business decisions off of data that's lagging by six months? Some people I hear a year.
3: Yeah, it does baffle. And I understand why there are hesitations to get rid of it. However, how much of this can be around addition, Mm -hmm. not replacement, And figuring out what are the gaps that need to be filled, perhaps, you know, during those months, weeks, days in between, and you need progressive leaders to challenge, but also bring solutions. A hundred percent.
4: And so folks, Julie Bowerman, CMO of Kellogg's, one of the things that she is doing at the organization is making the organization understand that media mix model, it has a big place within the organization. But there are other measurement systems that are more reflective of today's consumer right now in real time to be leading indicators for what needs to happen in their business. Julie has a lot of frameworks and things that she's doing at Kellogg's, but the best one is the yes end. Yes, we've been doing that. We can also do this. So on that note, let's bring Julie Bowerman onto the show. Hey, Julie. Julie. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Sarah. Great to be here. We're so excited. Sarah and
2: I apparently have swarmed you <laughs> in recent weeks and months, so glad we were able to get you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Yes. I've actually gotten to know both of your businesses and capabilities in a way that I didn't know before. And so it's been really good to kind of deep dive in with you and your teams. Glad we're doing our jobs effectively. <laughs> but on a different
4: note, you know, you have an amazing background as a marketer. You spent a good amount of time at Coca-Cola before you joined Kellogg's. You know, starting with your time at Coca-Cola, what do you feel you've taken from that experience that set you up for success
2: at Kellogg's today? Probably two things. My experience at Coke kind of have taught me one. Coke is with its reputation in marketing, it was just a like an MBA in marketing for me. I just learned a lot of my Basic fundamentals, how to build brands, the value of getting brands into retail, how to talk to a customer. I spent a lot of time in digital and e-commerce there before it was a thing for food and beverage. So I kind of built it and grew up in it, you know, as the industry was emerging in capability. So a lot of like foundational skills and just functional skills I got at Coke. But one of the things I think that kind of most importantly also that Coke taught me was just how but gave me kind of a lot of personal confidence in my own skills and leadership that as I got outside of Coke, I became probably a little more self-aware of what I learned there and my skills that as I got outside of Coke, just that confidence and my ability to kind of grow and expand my career accelerated because of my time there experience.
4: Having spent some time working with Coca-Cola and you, Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting things is this concept that you've spoken to me about is culture of marketers. And that being something that you took away from your experience at Coke, bringing with you to Kellogg's, like, how do you build a culture of marketers?
2: For me, coming from Coke, I had the fortune of to be a marketer at Coke, both internally and externally you felt like, wow, I not made it, but like this is one of the preeminent places to build a marketing career. And you knew that kind of from external feedback, but internally you felt that there was such immense love for the brand. The people were so smart. Everybody was passionate about the brands and their work. And so that just fed a culture. And so as I've come to Kellogg, I've brought some of that kind of experience to me and I'm trying to build it within Kellogg. We have an opportunity to build a little bit more like passion and love for the brands, and a sense of like, wow, we are so fortunate to be at Kellogg marketing these amazing, iconic brands. It's a little bit of a feeling and it takes some time, but there's some things that we're doing in terms of building awards and people recognition and elevating great work, bringing people together to celebrate our great work together. So
3: that's how I'm thinking about it anyway. I think it makes a a ton of sense because behind all of these phenomenal products are the people that get you there. And it's funny when you're in a product company, having come from an agency world where your people are your product to a product world where the people are the engine behind your product. Sometimes you lose sight of the inputs that get you to the output. So I really love what you just said. Speaking of people, I think one of the things that you even just referenced was the fact that you were very much ahead of your time as it related to thinking about commerce through the lens of marketing and integrating commerce as a mindset in the journey. And if COVID taught us nothing in the world of CPG, it's to rethink that customer journey. You were ahead of your time. How did you think about it when COVID hit and then How are you thinking about it now? Like, what's changed? We were fortunate at Kellogg in that we started building capability
2: and bringing in talent before COVID. So Steve, our CEO, and Monica McGurk, who was our chief growth officer at the time, said e-commerce is an important growth engine for the company. Let's start bringing in, let's build capability and bring talent in. And so myself and others were brought in at the company kind of in early 2019, And because of the talent that came into the organization, a lot of us externally that had come from the Cokes that had been, were a little farther ahead in capability, we brought that discipline. And so we spent all of that first year building that global capability. And so it was luck, to be honest, when COVID hit, you know, we had done that organization work in terms of structure. We had identified what the critical KPIs were to measure success in the business, we had started to build capability and things like our digital shelf tools and supply chain and you know working with Omni and PurePlay Play customers. And so we we kind of had that machine going. And so it helped us when, when COVID hit that we were able to just kind of you know accelerate where we are. Now that doesn't mean we were, you know, um, flawless. Um, but I think that that was really, really helpful. I mean, where we are today is now taking that as just kind of the bottom part of the funnel and what we've learned and built and now kind of starting to bring it to top of funnel and connecting those dots. And I would say, I don't think we're where we need to be there yet, but that's the work that I'm super focused on internally with my team is to connect the top and bottom funnel in a seamless experience, but also more importantly, like to think about our budgeting and our experiences in a way that are integrated. And it just makes it easier, more efficient. But there's a lot of internal work that you've got to do to enable that.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news,
1: Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.
3: That is so important and particularly important because we hear this all day long from people that live and breathe ecom. We don't always hear that from the CMO. So the fact that it is a priority for Julie Bowerman, CMO of Kellogg brings a greater degree of consciousness on what does budgeting look like? What does the actual path to purchase? What does ZMOT look like now versus then? Do you find that part of your role is proselytizing that and then helping people figure out what to do? Like, where are you on that education versus inspiration spectrum, if you will? Yeah, I
2: mean, definitely, we, you know, I feel like I've set a vision and an inspiration for it. Now I'm trying to do the heavy lift in terms of the how. For example, the previous CMO at Kellogg, who I succeeded, she didn't have e commerce as part of her remit. As I came into the role nine or 10 months ago, we brought e commerce into that organization. And the first thing I did was merge our shopper marketing teams and our e commerce team into one team, right? So just that alone, believe it or not, was a big move in synergizing budgets because you had shopper budgets and you had e-commerce budgets and you had media brand budgets. But yet you guys all know the consumer experience is all the same and how we talk to them should be integrated. So I have brought the shopper teams and the e-commerce teams together and we now have an omni team and they think very integrated in terms of kind of middle to bottom of funnel type of tactics.
4: I could probably name in my hand five CMOs that have e commerce And shopper marketing in their scope. I think it's where the industry is heading, but uh, not everyone is there yet.
2: I definitely recognize that it is kind of a, a first mover in the industry, a little bit, or an early mover in the industry to do that. I'm not happy with it yet, though, because I know that's only one piece of the puzzle that needs to be solved. As important now, we need to think about upper funnel and bringing those together. And that's hard. I'll be honest, that's a really hard thing because the way we measure, top of funnel and bottom of funnel are very different. So I've got to do as much work in terms of ways of working and process and kind of influencing in the organization as I have to do in terms of measurement. The measurement piece is the hardest piece in terms of how do we not use just MMM as our judgment to where media and marketing investments should go. And that is a hard thing to change um it's not necessarily a hard thing to change in that the metrics don't exist it's that they're super fragmented so understanding like where the best metrics are coming from that give you the best intel to make investment decisions that you can scale is hard and then how do you aggregate it together and tools and technology and so love that you brought
4: up mmm
2: <laughs> i
4: know very very close to your heart right Rachel? yeah it's probably my enemy yeah it was my enemy at gap and it's my enemy at you know with mmm finance plays a heavy hand typically as a as a stakeholder in that model and as you go about creating such great change within the organization like how are you educating your colleagues at your level on where the industry is heading and how measurement needs to evolve and and build that comfort level with them.
2: I don't know that I've got any like silver bullet here. Like we've brought in a couple of times we've brought in like other brands that I think are a little bit ahead of where we are to talk to our INA team, and our marketing teams, our data teams, our IT teams. The other thing is that we're trying to push a lot of tests and learns and a lot of pilots with capability. I mean, you know, Rachel, you and I just had this conversation, I mean, about the dashboard tool that you guys have at Micmac. I mean, that's not something we're using. I'm Since we've talked, I've told five people, I'm like, we need to look at the data. It doesn't mean that we make massive investment decisions, but let's just start to use other data sources in ways that might you know, make us think differently. That's the other way that we're trying to do it. You know, there's a guy who leads my data team. He's bringing a lot of measurement tools from some of his experience and you know partners that he's got. You know, to say, okay, here, here's another place we can learn and test and pilot in. Honestly, that's the best way I can think about it. the, the other thing that we are doing is we are doing a body of work now that says, okay, if full funnel is our vision. What are the metrics in each stage of the funnel that are gonna be the most meaningful to understand performance? Where are sources of data that we can use to measure that? And then how do we organize those measurements in a dashboard or in a tool that allows us to look at them in a much more agile way? That's not going to replace MMM short term. But if we can kind of start to get a little organized on this in in addition to MMM, I think it will start to influence over time how we look at both sets of data. Leading indicators versus lagging. MMM is lagging. Everybody knows it, but everybody's scared to walk away
4: from
3: it, Mm -hmm. you know. One of the things that that happens is you want the language to be familiar to something that you've done in the past so that people can get comfortable with it. But sometimes when it might even be better, it doesn't matter because you have to have that frame of reference to be like, oh, this, this sounds to me a lot like, you know, the same thing would be true, not just with media measurement, but also with sales data and measurement? What's the difference between what you're getting, let's say from, you know, an IRI versus, you know, a digital measurement tool for sales data. Like those are the kinds of things that it's different, but the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's two things. You've got kind of short-term metrics and
2: long-term metrics. The investment is so reliant on the short-term metric on the short, the sales, which are short-term immediate benefit, the investment has to pay off because that's largely what we're doing with that investment. And so, because there's like so much that's built into the PL of the business, you know, when we put a dollar, we get X back. That is literally in the PL of our business. And so, if you start to pull back from that or look at other measurements that are maybe not have as much scale or have as much footprint in terms of retail performance or data. Like you start to get nervous about what it could do to your PL. And so it's hard to unbundle from it completely because of that short-term reliance on it delivering sales.
4: One thing that Kellogg's has been doing a long time with data is the consumer loyalty program that I don't feel gets like covered enough and celebrated enough in the trades. And it's such an amazing backbone to the organization and, and I feel gives a competitive advantage because. You have a lot more first-party data than other mass CPG brands. Would love to hear how you're thinking about evolving the consumer loyalty program and what it means to the marketing organization.
2: Yeah. I mean, we really, we are evolving that. We're moving away from a loyalty program to more first party data as a capability that kind of powers into our marketing. So the collection and the usage of that data is still really important to us. The primary way we've historically captured and used that data is through the loyalty mechanic and a loyalty program. And what happens with that is like the data that you have can be a little biased because loyalty marketing is typically your loyal users, high frequent, you know, sometimes a little bit more promotion oriented consumers looking for deals. And what we want is the intelligence and the insights and the analytics that allows us to use that again in our full funnel vision. And so what we've had to do is build a strategy around collecting first party data in many other ways outside of our loyalty mechanism. Examples would be like in our promotions or just in our our normal kind of media campaigns, tagging our media and collecting data in a way that we maybe haven't historically and bring that into our first-party data. So that gives us a better sample of who the consumers are, the behavior, the intelligence of how they're behaving and responding. We're kind of thinking more in that space than we are loyalty marketing. From loyalty
4: to first-party data collection. I guess the, the big question is, We hear brands say things like a hundred million known users. That's our goal. Yeah. And then the question is like, what are you going to do with this data? How are you going to activate it? Is there a thesis around that? Like how will the organization
2: activate this data? First party data plays an important role for us because it's owned capability, right? So there's a lot more that you can do when it's owned, when you own it yourself. We're not thinking about it as it's going to be replacement of second and third party data sources, I think we're thinking that you know, we want to marry our own capability with partners' capability to be able to get better insights, do better audience segmentation, do modeling that allows us to get kind of scale, aggregate, but more precise about how we think about audiences too, versus just broad demographic sets, how we target and market. To me, like it's a piece of the data puzzle. It isn't the data strategy in and of itself. Does that answer your question? A hundred percent. It's so refreshing, Julie, to have
4: a pretty robust data conversation with a CMO. We often find that CMOs skirt around it. So I just want you to know how refreshing this is for Sarah and I. Oh, good. <laughs> Sadly, we have to ask our famous last question, which is, what's the bravest thing
3: you've ever done? I know what it is. It's talk data on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: What's the bravest thing I've ever done? There's two things that come to mind. One is I jumped off a cliff in Africa in Victoria Falls. That was probably a brave thing that I'll never do again.
4: Pre or post children.
2: <laughs> With, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's brave. <laughs> the other one I was that came to mind as soon as you asked a question was, honestly, leaving Coke was a pretty brave decision for me. It doesn't sound probably brave to to you guys or to your listeners, but for me, from a professional standpoint, it was, you know, getting out of my comfort zone. I'd been there 23 years. I'd never worked anywhere else. I had a robust career there. I still had a future there. It was really comfortable for me, but I just had this itch to do something else. And it took me a couple of years to actually make the move. And it's been the best move I've made because I have so much more confidence in myself and my skills. And I've learned so much more in other businesses and other brands. It was uh it was a really hard decision. So again, it's not anything exciting, but that's, that was what came to mind.
4: No, we, we hear constant stories about taking that leap to your next role is a form of bravery. And we completely agree for sure. Well, thank you, Julie.
2: Oh! My pleasure. Gosh, so fun. I could do this for two hours with you guys. Oh, doing so. <laughs> oh great. We'll have you back. <laughs> follow Julie on LinkedIn,
4: watch what Kellogg's is doing. And thank you again. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening.
4: Please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts, follow us on Spotify and Google
3: podcasts, and don't forget to share this link with a friend.
1: Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to ViralGrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams
5: into a reality. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy